Hey, welcome to the 58th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated scene writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, my guest is Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. For my money, the best newspaper sports columnist in the business. Mike and I have a whole lot to talk about, from his farewell to Yogi Berra, to getting heated with the New York Mets general manager, actually two of them, to never freezing on deadline. Mike is a pro's pro, and it's a thrill to have him here. So let's get Yangy, I just made up that word, right now, on two writers, slinging Yang. All right, Mike, I appreciate you doing this, and I want you to know you are making history today. You know of Wry Thompson at ESPN, correct? I know him well, absolutely. You know uh, Chris Ballard at Sports Illustrated? I know Chris very well also, sure. All right, so you are the third, along with those two, to be on this podcast and have me recording it while sitting in my car in a Starbucks parking lot. So I'd like to congratulate <laughs> you on that. Well, you know what? I, it, it's, it's about right. I, I followed right with something because he followed me at the Kansas City Star. So now I feel like we're even. You know, so I worked at the Tennessee and I started my career at the Tennessee mm-hmm. and the Tennessee and produced a bunch of people who ended up going to the New York Times and different places. And, and obviously the LA Times had this pipeline for a while and, you know, the Washington, all these different newspapers. Is the Kansas City Star a little bit overlooked? And should we giving it, we be giving it more credit as sort of a, 80s slash 90s pipeline to big name journalists? Oh my gosh. I mean, I can just tell you that when I was working there, you know, I could barely get a column in the paper because Joe Posnanski and Jason Whitlock were the two, were the two main guys. So I was the third columnist and the takeout writer during my year there. I mean, after we were there, you had Kent Babb was there and obviously Ray Thompson was there and Jeff Passan was there. It really is, it's, it's, it's it had an amazing run under a couple of guys, uh, Din, Din Mann, who, Went on to work at MLB Advanced Media and Mike Fannin, who's the managing editor of the paper now. But uh, they, they they had an amazing spate of hires. It was a it was a fun place to work, man. It was like working in a advanced journalism lo- uh, laboratory when I was there in late '97, early '98. It was great, it really was. Is that idea? Is that dead? Is the idea of a pipeline? Because you know, we always talked about pipelines, like that was the thing. Where's the pipeline? Where is that over? You know, I think unfortunately the problem is that. Uh, People who are good tend to wind up in their ultimate destinations faster than they used to be before. That's good for yeah. them. It's not necessarily good to, to, to like maintain something, you know. I mean, even for, you know, Kansas City was wonderful for me also, but my paper prior to that was the Middletown Times-Herald Record, which nobody's heard of. And I could go chapter and verse on 10 guys who went right from there to either the New York Post or the New York Daily News or the Times. I mean, that was a great pipeline also. You'll never see that kind of pipeline starting in a paper like that, I don't think, with that kind of multiple alumni, but uh, yeah, Kansas City was something special, and it's uh, you know it's it still produces a great guy every now and then, uh, every year or two, and you know a lot of guys who have decided to stay and make their careers there. But uh, Sam Mellinger and Vahi Gregorian are terrific, and they're the one-two columnist bunch now. But uh, yeah, it's a it's great. It, it, it was always great. I mean, when you said about the Tennessee, and it's like that, you know, we would always look at places like the Times Pick, another place where Wright used to work, and see some of the guys who had gone through there, you know, and. And obviously, I guess the ultimate Kansas City Star alum was Ernest Hemingway, which all of us is, who worked there have cited one, one time or another. <laughs> That's actually interesting. You have Hemingway and I have uh, 
We have Halberstam. We could actually go <laughs> to war right. on that one a little bit. That'd be a pretty good wrestling match. I understand that Halberstam was better on deadline than Hemingway, but we can talk yeah. about that. <laughs> <Probably sound drinkless. laughs> you know, speaking in, in the terms of sort of what was and what is, you, you've, been a, uh, you've been at the post uh, since, am I wrong, 02? Was that your starting date there? Almost 16 years, which is amazing. Yeah, 16 years. It'll be 16 years in November. Does what you do now, does being a sports columnist in 2018, does it carry the same oomph and weight? And maybe it does. I actually don't know an answer. Does it carry the same oomph weight? I need to read what this guy's saying that it did in 2002. Or has the sort of landscape changed what you do? and the way people receive you in, in ways that alter the nature of your job. Jeff, you know what the biggest difference is? I think now, in order to have that kind of impact, you better be good. You better have written a good column. You better have written an informative column that was well thought out, well reported out, one that you made a couple of phone calls on to make sure that you, were, you, know, that you weren't just talking from 30,000 feet em- with, 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 you know, with an empty voice. Uh, I think those empty columns uh, get weeded out immediately, don't get noticed or read. I think back in 2002 and certainly in years before that, I think basically the, whatever you wrote, whatever the columnist wrote uh, was important because the columnist wrote it. I don't think we have that kind of uh, luxury anymore. And I think it's a good thing for one thing. I know from my standpoint, it forces me to, you know, to, 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 to continue to work as hard now as I did when I first did the, the column in 2002. And even, in, even then, you know, I've done enough, enough, enough history projects and read enough old microfilms to realize that no matter what I do in 2018, I'm probably not going to have the bully pulpit or the power that Dick Young did in 1970. It's just not the way it is anymore. You know, I mean, Dick Young said something and it got done. Dick Young said, fire this manager. Chances are he got fired two weeks later. Um, I, you know, I don't think that we necessarily have that kind of, of power anymore, nor do I think it's a bad thing that we don't have that kind of power anymore. I think that in the broader context of sports and sports journalism, we still have a voice and we still have meaning. But you have to earn that every day. You know, I think I, I know a lot of people who are, you know, you know, who, who, who came up the way that I came up, who still feel kind of, you know, angry or bitter that the, at, at the crowded landscape now with bloggers and people who just do their own thing. And I think it's great. I mean, to me, honestly, I mean, I read, I read so many blogs of things that they interest me. I read those blogs all the time because you know why? Those people who write, write because they want to, not because they're getting paid, because it interests them. You know, right. I could read a, I, I could read a Springsteen blogger or a blog around the Beatles going for five thousand words. I'll read every word and believe it because I know that that guy wrote it or that woman wrote it because that's that had to come out. It was something they had to they they they, they had to write somewhere. And now because it's two thousand and eighteen, they have a place to write it. And those are the kind of things that we're competing against, and that's a good thing. It forces us forces guys in my job, I think, to never just say, you know what, I'm just going to write this column you know, from my living room and not even bother to make a phone call, not even bother to give it, you know, some deep thought and just send it in. I think you could get away with that for many years in this job, but you really can't now, at least not for long, or you'll be, you know, you'll be outed right away. Right. So you wrote a, you wrote a column June 24th, 2018. This is not one of the ones you sent me. I was reading it this morning <laughs> and I freaking loved it. Sandy Alderson is just destroying the Mets and must be stopped. That's the headline. The lead real quick. The Mets want you to believe they have a handle on all of this. They want you to believe they are adequate traffic cops directing all the baseball chaos that continues to befall and befuddle them, that they aren't the abject joke of malpractice and incompetence they seem to be to the naked eye. They want to sell you on that so badly. It's a great, 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 great 
take apart piece on the Mets, who obviously are just a complete disaster. Um, when you write that column, like it reads angry. It doesn't read irrationally angry. It reads understandably angry. Are you actually, is there emotion going into these columns? Is there, are you actually feeling something when you're writing it? Or is that a little too, am I reading into things too much here? No, I, I, I think that's pretty accurate, Jeff. I mean, obviously you can't be that way every time you write. And I think that, you know, look, I mean, I, I, I think one of the things in my arsenal that I have uh, going for me is I do have a good fastball. But part of the reason why it's effective is because I only use it sporadically. I mean, look, I, mean, I could write angry about the Knicks every day. I could write angry about the Jets every day. I think you have to be judicious with it. In, 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 that, in that instance, it was kind of a perfect storm of things that had just occurred in, in you know, that day and the days leading up to it. Uh, and it had been something I had been talking about anyway. And I think it just kind of hit a, uh, hit, hit a note, just the, you know, the, the, the setup plus the day plus the way things went. And it just seemed uh, seemed the right time to do that. So I do think there's, you know, anger, I think, is probably the right word. I mean, not anger in the same way a fan is angry, but anger in that, you know what, this is a guy who I, you know, who's entrusted to do something important, which is to be the GM of a baseball team, and he's not doing a very good job, you know. And, of right. course, you know, I, 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 I think one of the, you know, the other interesting things about that column, of course, and, you know, I'm sure you've had this happen in your career, but I wrote that. That appeared on a Monday. And, you know, it, was, it, it, caused, it caused a lot of stir. And later on Monday is when Sandy Alderson revealed he was stepping down and uh, was, was resuming a battle with cancer. So it was also an interestingly timed thing. Obviously, I had no idea of what was to come with Sandy Alderson when I wrote that. And nor can you. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I, hate to, I hate to quote the Godfather, but there's business and there's personal. And, you know, the business is ripping Sandy Alderson, the GM. The personal is admiring Sandy Alderson, the man anyway, but also certainly you know, being, you know, rooting for him in his fight against this terrible disease. Of course, you do have your trolls in 2018. So I heard from a few people on, on Twitter that, you know, especially because the headline said Sandy Alderson must be stopped, you know, they, 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 they took some, 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 some glee in saying, well, I guess you stopped them, which, of course, you know, unfortunately are the things that the guys like you and I have to deal with a lot when you deal with opinion and you, when, when you're not afraid to share those opinions. But, uh, but yeah, that, so as a result, I think that column had all of, had, had, had all the things you want in a column. From soup to nuts, both in terms of the uh, you know the the genesis of writing it, and then the reaction that happened on the on the other on the other side of it. You write the column; it runs. You obviously had no idea what was coming, right? You the next day it comes out saying the Alderson cancer. I don't know. Is there a little? Do you feel guilty or bad or something afterwards? Do you think to yourself, "Ah, oh, that was bad time," or is it just? Can you steal yourself and say, "Look, this is what I do." Look, if I'm being honest, certainly when I heard that news. I actually saw the news bulletin of all places. I was I was in a steam room after a workout. And I just it popped up and I and I thought it was a joke at first. You know, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm like, wait, wait, who's wait? Is this somebody? No, it can't be a joke. This is the real thing. And in that moment there, you know, I I I felt I felt something. I can't say I felt bad. Look, I mean, like you said, I this th- this was not intended in anything to be related to any of the of his personal you know the things that was going on in his personal life. So. So I you know, immediately kind of realized that I didn't feel guilty about, but certainly the timing, you know, made you feel a little odd, you know, and, you know, it made me feel, I'll tell you a quick story that this made me think of. A couple of years ago, me and Steve Politti from the, from the Star Legend, we were both working in Newark. Uh, Steve had tracked down uh, Walter Dukes, one of the all-time great players of Seton Hall, and it was a great story, and the paper made the decision to hold it a couple of weeks for Selection Sunday. And the story comes out, it's a big deal because no one knew what happened to Walter Dukes. Seton Hall was all excited, his family was excited. 
His family reached out to him, couldn't reach him. Well, long story short, they found him, and poor Walter Dukes was dead. Not only was he dead, but he'd been dead like a week. So this wow. story ran basically about a dead man that we had no idea was dead. Now, the, 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 the editor of the paper at the time, Jim Woolsey, who was a very wise, wise man guy, really, you know, I got a lot of wisdom from in my couple of years at the Star-Ledger, said, you know, there's a, there's a lesson to be learned from this, but I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> I, ca- I kind of felt the same way with this, with the Sandy thing. You know, there's a lesson to be learned here, I guess, but, but, but uh, here's what I think the lesson is, and I think that I was grateful for this. I think sometimes you talk about writing angry, and I've been guilty of this myself. Sometimes you do cross the line between just being angry entirely, making it professional, and taking a cheap shot to emphasize your point. I think that's a bad thing to do anyway. And I didn't do it in this column, I don't believe. But I think that it's a lesson to remember that if you think you can, you, you can sneak a funny line in there somewhere and to maybe take a cheap shot at somebody, then maybe if, if you're determining whether you should do it or not, error on the side of take it out. Because you do want you have to an example? Do you have an example from your career where you feel like, looking back, you made the wrong call? Yeah, I do. I can't, I, 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 there's probably more than this, but this is the one that sticks out in, in, in thinking of this. I mean... Obviously, when Isaiah Thomas was running the Knicks, I wrote, you know, I had a cottage industry on, on writing hard columns, ripping Isaiah. Um, yep. One of, and one time, you know, it was one of these things where was, I forget exactly the context of why I was hammering him, but I, I, I slipped in a couple of things where I might have indicated, you know, he's a clown. He's not just incompetent, he's a clown, you know, which really has yep. no place. If, you, if, you, if you're just trying to, to, to keep it personal, I mean, there's no, there's really no reason to call him that, but I did. Well, of course, I work at the New York Post, Jeff. So the next morning I woke up, and what's on the back page? Isaiah Thomas in a clown suit. <laughs> Man, right. And, and I mean, I, I looked at it, and, you know, two things went through my mind. One, I was supposed to go on vacation the next day, and I realized I can't go on vacation tomorrow because I need to go to Nick's camp and at least have Isaiah see me. So if he wants to say anything, he has the opportunity to say it to me. Um, and, and, and two was, you know what, sometimes you have to, it's better to be judicious. Now, you know what? Maybe they would have put him in the clown suit anyway, but I have a feeling right. that my putting the word clown in the column probably, you know, probably planted a seed. And, you know, it was like, I've still got the back page. It's hysterical to look at. I, I don't have it hanging on my wall, though, because it's not exactly one that I'm all that proud of, to be honest. <laughs> right. You know, we, I just had this discussion two weeks ago with a, uh, there's a guy I worked with at the Tennessean who is now a, a sports, uh, editor in, in uh, Columbia, Tennessee. Uh, and he, uh, he was talking about accountability. We had a long talk about accountability. And you, you just talked about you had, you know, you were supposed to go away and you literally went to the Knicks the next day. So at least someone could see you. Um, I don't, may, maybe this is like old man ranting. I feel like people don't do that like they used to. Do you still see it? Do you feel like I'm overstating that? Is it, is, is that still a thing? It's not only a thing, Jeff. I think it's a huge thing. You may not remember this, but the first time that I met you, we were just sitting next to each other on a plane. I forget where we were coming from. And I remember one of the things I talked to you about, you know, you know and I had already written you know, enough, of your, read enough of your stuff to know that I liked your work. But what I told you that, I don't know if, why you would remember this, but I just remember telling you this, that the thing that impressed me most about you was that you were willing to be there in John Rocker's line of sight after all that crap that went down. And to me, it's not, it's not that I thought that that was something special. I just thought that was exactly the way I was taught. It sounds like that's exactly the way you were taught. That look, I mean, yeah. you're not go, you're not going for a confrontation. You're not going for a fight. You're not going to have you know, be on TV so a player can tell you, "I'm going to show you the Bronx." That's not why you do this. 
you do it because if you're gonna if you're gonna take into account another someone another person's professional shortcomings, then they have the right to answer you. And maybe they'll call you, and maybe they won't. Maybe they'll email you. Maybe they won't. But you know what? If you're going to do that to me, I was taught this way by a number of of columnists when I was first coming up. You know, show the show the gumption to give that person an opportunity to respond to you. And I, I, th- that's among the first pieces of advice I gave anybody, not just columnists, but even beat writers who have to write, you know, hard stuff about the guys they cover, is never cower. You know, never be scared of these guys. Never, you know, and never take the cowardly way out, which is to not show up. And, you know, we won't name them here, but, I mean, you and I both know guys that we could list to if, who take shots and never, ever show up in front of that guy, ever. So there's never an right. opportunity for that guy to, 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 to make the writer accountable. And to me, I mean, look, the only way you're going to do, the only way that you're going to write something that sticks is, is, is if you're willing to take the blowback for what you wrote. And a lot of times that means coming, you know, you're giving the guy the opportunity to, to call you a son of a bitch or whatever they're going to call you. And there's no, and I'll be honest, I'll take another step further. In fact, this is one of the things that, that irked me with some of the respondents to my Sandy column was, People saying, okay, tough guy, let's see you ask him a question at the next press conference. And, of course, my response is, you have no idea or no idea of my career at all if you don't think that that's the, you know, the, 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 the first thing I think about when I rip somebody is how, is, you know, how am I going to be in front of this guy the next time? What am I, what am I going to have the opportunity to give this guy a chance to, you know, to, 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 to retort? And you're right. I, I, but, but to answer your, your basic question, I don't think that's taught nearly as much now. There's not as much emphasis. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen guys take shots at guys and you don't see them for weeks afterward. And I just think that's, uh, that, that, that's a poor way to do it. What was the time you did it that was the most awkward? Because we all have them. Like, what was, your, what was your, your worst experience of showing up? Worst, but obviously you have to do it, experience of showing up. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean I've had a couple, but the one that was the most uncomfortable was, uh, this is right after I took the job at the Post. And I was actually covering a Nets-Bucks playoff series, but the Mets were imploding. And so my office said, why don't you stick around because they were playing the Brewers. And so I, I had written a column Friday for Saturday. And this is during the, you know, the, the Mets team, the teams that had Mo Vaughn and, and Roberto Alomar and were just, you know, very unlikable in addition to being awful. And I, and, and I ripped Steve Phillips, um, the general manager the at the time. The right. right. Um, you know, it's, it, it, for, for assembling this team and, and basically, you know, I mean, and look, I may well have had one of those moments where I, I think I might have written about, you know, putting, you know, putting people, players' heads on a pike on the Triborough Bridge, whatever. I was a lot younger and angrier then. But, but again, I mean, whatever. I wrote what I wrote. And so the next day, I mean, you know, Joe, Jay Horowitz, the longtime PR guy for the Mets, he, you know, he told me, uh, you know, Steve would like to talk to you today. And I'm like, absolutely. That's right here. <laughs> so I, you know, I went down for pregame clubhouse. And I knew it was a little interesting that when I went into the room where Jay led me and Steve, that Steve told Jay to leave the door open. So I knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to air me out loud so the players could hear him and he, you know, and hopefully be impressed by whatever he had to say. And, right. uh, you know, I sat, I sat there and I took it. I took it and I, I told him, Steve, I, I appreciate what you're saying. But he kind of went on a little too long and got a little too loud and finally said, you know what the worst part of this was? You made my wife cry. And because I'm old, because I am who I am, and you know, I, I reached a certain point. I said, "Well, Steve, that makes two of us in this room, doesn't it?" <laughs> oh. I thought, because I, 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 I mean, as, as you may know, that, that that was a couple of years after he, you know, had been 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 outed as kind yeah. of a serial philanderer. Anyway, so I thought he was going to take a swing at me, and Jay basically had to come between us. 
And of course, that was the part that the players all all heard. That's the part that kind of got me, you know, on the good side of a lot of players. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. And, and and look, I mean, you know, not long after that, Steve was fired, and I don't think the two of us have exchanged a civil word since. And I understand, look, whatever it is, what it is. But that that would certainly qualify. Probably, I, I would imagine, I, I would hope, I guess, that retires the trophy of awkward uh, confrontations. But you know what? He had, the, he had every right to yell at me. He had every right to say what he said. And maybe I went a little too far with my retort, but whatever. You get two guys who get into an argument, right? Sometimes it's not always going to be civil discourse. Yeah. Will Clark just lit into me in the clubhouse just for the pure sake <laughs> of embarrassing me. And then um, right. years later, he was a spring training instructor with the Arizona Diamondbacks. You know, and he was much more one of us than one of them at this point. You know, kind of balding mm-hmm. and heavy and sure. eating the donuts, the free donuts. And yeah, <laughs> I went up to him to ask him a question and he started lighting into me. And I basically said, you know what? I don't, I don't fucking need to talk to you anymore. I don't care. I don't need to. I do not need to talk to you. You do not interest me. Right. And it was one of the most joyful and liberating <laughs> moments of my career when you just yeah. feel like I am not afraid anymore. I am not nervous anymore. I've passed that point in my career. I don't care. And that's a great place to be. It is because you know what? I mean, look, I mean, you write critical stuff. I write critical stuff. It's part of what we do. It's part of our, you know, professional DNA. And, and you understand going in that it's going to be an adversarial relationship sometimes, not always, but sometimes. But that, but we're also still human beings. We like to get along. We have, we have friends. We like having fun. We like being liked. I'm sure at our core, you know, I don't necessarily go out of my way to want to make enemies. But that's kind of the 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 the, uh, the collateral damage of this profession sometimes. And you just have to kind of. They, 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 you're right. There does come a a moment where you realize after a while that it doesn't bother you nearly as much as it used to. And right. uh, you know, I think that is. I think liberating is the right word to use. Before we continue with two riders slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my lovely daughter, Casey. So, Casey, we're going to play word association. I'll say something, and you tell me the first thing that enters your mind, okay? All right, Dad. Chocolate mousse. Jerry Holmes. Summers at the beach. Todd Fowler. Justin Bieber. Doug Flutie. Wait, I don't get it. What did chocolate mousse, Summers at the beach, and Justin Bieber have to do with former USFL players? Ugh, Dad. Isn't it obvious? Uh, no. If you can't figure it out, I'm not going to bother to explain it to you. Now do your stupid ad. Fine, I will. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback merchandise. 503 Sports sells amazing sports gear, USFL, XFL, World Football League, Minor League Baseball, Minor League Hockey, all handcrafted and at amazing prices. So be like Casey and visit 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to save 10% off your first purchase. You, um, you're really good at taking subjects that a million people are writing about and finding something really interesting. Just an example. You, you sent me this one. It's a really good one. June 20th, 2016. It's good to be the king. LeBron delivers on promise to Cleveland. And, you know, you're, you're in Oakland. Your lead is LeBron wept. He had no legs left. He barely had a wrist left. Uh, one final ball from Stephen Curry had clanged harmlessly away. The final few seconds of a 52-year journey through the wilderness were grinding to dust. And this is all the greatest basketball player on the planet could do now that this 93-89 victory was frozen on the scoreboard. How do you go about writing something when you're on deadline, when you're surrounded by 300 other members of the media and finding uniqueness in it? Jeff, you know what? I mean, there's a couple of ways I can answer that because, I mean, it's, it's it's a great subject, I think. 
writing on deadline to me is probably going to be an extinct art in 10 years. You know, I mean, people are always going to have some kind of deadline, but not the kind of deadline that newspaper people are used to. So I do think that there's, that there's something to be said for the training that goes on, you know, early in a career. I'm sure you probably did this to an extent, you know, where you're taking 50 high school volleyball scores and you have to figure out a way to make it all work in two hours without a byline, but you better get those names spelled right or else you're going to get, you know, hammered and then fired. And that's the kind of thing that plants the seeds for, I think, being able to think fast on deadline. One of the great pieces of advice I ever got in the business was from Jerry Eisenberg, who was a wonderful mentor to me. We both both worked at the Star Ledger, and he was incredibly gracious, incredibly generous with his time to me, and invested in in wanting me to become a better columnist. I'll never forget that and always be indebted to him. And one of the great lines he ever told me is like, you know, here's here's the only thing that I care about when I write a column on deadline of the Super Bowl or at the Kentucky Derby or wherever. He said, I want to be better than anybody who's faster than me and faster than anybody who's better than me. <laughs> so oh, I always good. keep that that's in great. mind. You know, and, and it, 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 it's a wonderful thing. And, and look, here's the thing. I mean, the reason why my paper keeps, you know, agreeing to send me places like the NBA Finals that day is because I guess there's enough trust now. They realize they're not just going to get standard PAP. For better or worse, it's going to be, you know, that, that event seen through the prism of my eyes and whatever I can do with my fingers on deadline with the, with the keyboard. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's just so, so I, I have, been, I, I, you know, I have been graced by very generous editors who have allowed me that freedom. And I've been, you know, further had, 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 the, had the great good fortune to have editors earlier in my career who allowed me to become better at the job. You know, um, you know, I talked about the Kansas City Star earlier. And I talked about Mike Fannin, who's now the, 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 the managing editor. And I'm you know, I, whenever I can, I always make a point of mentioning him because I was at the Star for a year. And it was like, it's, it's like one of those factory treadmills where something goes in the one side as, you know, as, as like raw meat and it comes out the other packaged and beautiful. I mean, right. that's exactly what I felt like as a writer at the Kansas City Star. This guy took, took care in every sentence I wrote and always would, would bitch about why'd you bury the nut graph again? And, you know, how could you possibly have written 100 inches and not told me a thing about this guy and so on and so forth? And that was the greatest laboratory of my professional career. And I owe, I, I owe so much of what I'm able to do including being able to write coherently and independently on deadline to him. Part of it, though, is that, look, I mean, I, I think that's the kind of thing you do by doing it. You know, you only get, get good at it by, by doing it a lot. It's like a muscle. It's like reps. It's like going to the gym and working on your tricep. You know, I mean, it's, it really is. And, and you know, my, my fear is that younger writers aren't, aren't going to get as many repetitions, aren't going to get as many chances to be bad at it so they can ultimately be good at it. And I think right. that the reason why – I do think that if I, if I were to list the strengths of what I bring to the job right now, for better or worse, is that I can write fairly, uh, you know, cogently on deadline and, and, and produce something that's readable, you know, in, in a half an hour. And I, I only, I've only been able to do that after a lifetime of doing it. And I hope that there are other – the younger, you know, the, the, the younger generations get that opportunity that I got. Have you ever froze? Have you ever been on deadline and just kind of froze? I mean, I, this is this may sound absurd, and maybe this explains some things. Never, I've never. I, I know what you mean. I, 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 I'll say this: I always worry that I will at some point, but it's never happened. I've never blown a deadline ever. I've never, you know, I, I've never felt you know, with, you know writer's block when I'm on, on deadline. Now I've written three books, and there have been times where I've sat <laughs> and, stared, right. and, and stared at blank computer screens for three days. But been unable to get from word seventy five thousand to word eighty thousand in my book, 
that's a whole different kind of thing. I think, yeah. I, it's, I, I, it's, it's just, it's a different to be, so, so I have had writer's block, but freezing on deadline is not, and here's the funny thing. I think if you told me in that moment, all right, pal, you got an hour to get from 75,000 to 80,000, I'd do it because now I'd have a clock ticking right. here and right. I'd be, and I'd be falling back on instinct, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, for whatever reason, good training, good fortune, and maybe it's just, you know, whatever, you know, whatever talents you get in your tool bag. I mean, mine was uh, an ability to be able to churn stuff out rapidly and with a clock ticking. So, so I haven't, but, but I've, st- I've certainly thought about what it would be like if, if, that, if that day ever comes. It is actually <clears throat> remarkable. Give me, give me three days to write a column or give me three days to write a piece for the athletic or something. And two days and 22 hours will be me playing some stupid game, me checking Twitter a million times, taking a run, going to the gym, watching some rerun of happy days or whatever. And then the last, give me 30 minutes and I'll, I'll be like, all right, I got to do this. It's a weird, I don't know if that comes from a newspaper background um, because I'm the same way in my books as you are. I don't, I'm worse with more time. It's kind of a weird thing. Well, what's the old saying? Idle hands in the devil's workshop, right? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, idle time is the same is the t- is the same way. It's 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 uh, it's uh, I I do think part of it is newspapers, but I also think part of it is probably you know, like I mean, if, if I wasn't a newspaper guy, I have a feeling that whatever career I would have I would have drifted toward is something that would have been time sensitive, you know, where you had to deliver this by this time. That just seems right. to be the way that I'm made up. You know, I'm I'm, I'm right. better when I need to be. And so, for the friend, yeah, I, I can't speak for you, but I, I, I do sense that might be something that's in us as opposed to something that was developed in us because you worked at Tennessee and, and I worked at the Olean Times Herald and the Kansas City Star. Right. Um, so when you're at an event, you're writing off of an event, NBA Finals, baseball game, whatever. Um, you're in the press box. You're watching the game. You're like, when, how are you deciding what you're going to write about? When does it hit you? What hits you? When do you start writing? You know, what is the kind of soup to Nazi process for you with a column? Sometimes something really, it's great when you get the Thunderbolt. You know, I think in the, in the Godfather, Mario Puzo talked about Michael Corleone meeting his wife and feeling the Thunderbolt. And mm-hmm. I kind of feel that way sometimes when a column hits you. Like, I mean, I can just, the column I wrote last night, you know, it was a kind of a nondescript game between the Yankees and the Braves. All of a sudden, the Braves, uh, Acuna hits a, hits a ball deep to right field and this, you know, Aaron Judge almost catches it, but doesn't. And there's so many things that instantly strike me. People always complaining about Yankee Stadium and cheap home runs and Aaron Judge. And all of a sudden, boom, I knew that I had to write that. And I was going to do a deep dive of that. And so all of a sudden, I knew it, and there was nothing that was going to change it, and I did it. So I have that column in front of me. And you start, it's really interesting. It's called uh, Yankees get, take, get a Taste for How the Other Half Lives. And your lead is, in three words, David Robertson perfectly described life in Yankee Stadium. When you earn your living throwing the baseball, not hitting it, when you were guarding against the short porch in right field and not taking aim at it. It stinks, yeah, Robertson said. Maybe 30 minutes earlier in the 11th inning of a 3-3 game against Atlanta, Robertson had hoped to bury, blah, 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 blah. So you're in the uh, press box. You know you're going to write this. Are you running down? Are you rushing down to the Yankee clubhouse to get some stuff really quick? Like, what? Do you, how are you working that? Well, I mean, for, first off, I'm just praying the Yankees don't come back and win the game and take my cow away from me, for one. But yeah, once the game ends, uh, it, it's exactly how it is, you know. And and that that was a, a, a nice, tidy four-hour game. So we're really hitting up against the the last deadline. So, you know, yeah. So uh, go go down to the to, to downstairs, talk to Aaron Boone, ask him the questions they need to ask. 
and then rush into the clubhouse. I know I just need two guys. I need Boone. I need, I need Robertson. And luckily they both came out in a reasonable amount of time. So, you know, by the time I got back to the, to the press box, I probably had about 45 minutes to write. And that's plenty for me to, you know, that, I think that's a 700 word column. That's, you know, I've gotten to where I know the math, you know, um, if I, if I have to, I can write 700 words in about 20 minutes. Uh, and right. then, you know, obviously send it and then go back and massage it a little bit. But, but, uh, that's the, you know, that, that's the, that, that's the key math. You know, when I know that, uh, that I have 20 minutes, I know that I'll be able to get it in. And like I said, you know, I'm probably jinxing myself here, Jeff, but, uh, you know, so far I haven't found myself just staring and frozen on deadline yet. Uh, that day is still to come. <laughs> Do you think you'd be bored if tomorrow you went to work for the, uh, I don't know, the Sun Sentinel? Or the Minneapolis Star Tribune, like, do you feed off the New York buzz, the competition, the 8 million other, you know, competitors there at the same time as you? Do you need that at this point? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I'd be bored elsewhere, but I do know that I get a, I get a rush here that uh, is definitely unique to the market and definitely unique to, you know, probably unique to my newspaper, too, let's be honest. I mean, New York Post is a different animal, uh, for better or for worse, depending on, on, your, on your point of view. And... You know, there is an expectation of, of, of edginess and whatever else you want to, you know, ascribe to the post. And, and that, 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 that definitely fuels me. There's no question about that. That's, that's part of what makes it so much fun. And New York makes it, makes it that much fun. And yes, the fact is that this, this is one of the last multi newspaper markets. And certainly you had the athletic and you had ESPN, you had all the other voices that are in the press box every night. It certainly does make it for a unique situation. I mean, it would be, Put it this way, I, I, you know, I, like I said earlier, I worked in Kansas City. That's a one-horse a one town. That would be hard to go back to, knowing you're the only outlet and you're kind of competing against yourself. That would be a difficult one to go against. Right. I talked to Joel about this when he was here. I, um, I remember when I came up. So when I was first at Sports Illustrated and I was covering baseball, and I would do, I did a fair amount of Mets and some Yankees, but mainly Mets. And, and the intensity of the New York market the ferocity that a lot of the writers brought there, the competitiveness and the sort of rivalries. Do you, are you allowed to be friends with your competitors? Do you, do you have to, I don't know, do you have to sleep with one eye open? Are you concerned about them? Can you go on the road where you go out for a beer with a columnist for the Daily News and the New York Times? How's that relationship work? Yeah, you know, I do. I do have friends at the other, at the other papers. Um, not all of them. And I do have bitter rivals at the other places too. I mean, it, it depends. Really on the personality and whether we'd be friends anyway, I think. But I, I'll say this. I mean, one of the great things about the job that I have now for me is that, and, it, and I've had it now for, like I said, almost 16 years, is that for the first time in my life, I'm doing the job so I can do the job well, as opposed to what I'm worrying about my next job, as opposed right. to, you know, I, I need to make this story perfect so the next sports editor will read it and maybe hire me. You know, I haven't had that feeling in 16 years and it's amazing. And this isn't to say that I've cashed my chips. I mean, certainly, I mean, there could be another stop along the way on the resume path for me at some point down the road. But for now, I mean, this is, this, this is a great place, place where I've always wanted to work. And so there is a, I don't, I don't want to say Zen because I don't, I, I don't believe in that, but there's, there's a comfort level of knowing that whatever it is that I do for better or worse, I think I'm pretty good at it. And so I don't have to worry about. What, whether this guy at the Daily News thinks I'm any good, because if he does or he doesn't, that doesn't bother me. You know, it, 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 there was a time when it definitely would have. Certainly a time earlier in my career when the only thing that mattered to me was what other sports writers thought of my work. 
Um, right. and it's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot, it's a lot easier life this way. And it's a lot easier, I think, to do better work this way when you're not constantly worried about things you can't control. It's really, I've, I've had this conversation before. There is no replacement for aging as a writer. Like there's no better tool. Don't you feel that way? There's no better. I don't love aging. I don't love that my back hurts. I don't love that my <laughs> guts gotten bit. You know, like I don't love the side effects of aging at all. But I feel like there are things I could have gone back and told my 24 year old self and 24 year old me would have told me to fuck off. You're just old. You don't know what you're talking about. I, I just feel like there's so many lessons you learn just by doing this that can't be taught. It's like the old saying, right? That I couldn't believe how dumb my father was when I was 25. And then when I was 50, I couldn't believe how smart the old man got. I mean, it's kind of the way you are with yourself with your career. I mean, 24 year old me had no idea, just could not understand. Why, why sports editors around the country could not identify me as being the next hot thing. I mean, what's wrong with these people? Right. And of course, now, now, now I look back at the stuff I was writing when I was 24, and I, and I want to go burn all the microfilms at the Northwest Arkansas Times and the OAN Times Herald, all the places where my bylines appeared for fear that someone will actually read this sometime. Um, but that's, but that's good, you know, right? I mean, if, it's like, it's like anything else. I mean, I guess if we were looking back at stuff we were writing when we were 30 and said, boy, I was really good then, that wouldn't be a good statement on where we are now in our career. So, uh, but, right. but, but, but it is amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's like a ball player, right? I mean, unfortunately, most ball players don't understand how to play baseball until they're too old to play baseball. You know, right. it's the rare player who can, who can not only harness his talent, but also his attitude when he's in his early mid twenties. And with writers is the same way. I mean, look, I mean, uh, you know, and a lot of what good writing is, is going through the hardships of life. In your case, having two kids and a family and, you know, writing all your books. In my case, you know, losing my father or whatever. You know, these are all things that, 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 that build in your head when you're trying to write something. I mean, it may not seem that it has anything to do with a basketball game you're writing that day, but it does because it's all part of who you are and, and what you're bringing to your keyboard. You know, it's, it, 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 it's all part of the toolbox and, and, uh, it's, it's just, you just have more stuff to draw on for me at age 51 than I did when I was 31 or 21. How did losing your father impact you as a writer, as a journalist? Well, for one thing, I mean, you know, it, it, it caused me to realize that the greatest gift I'd ever been given was by him and that he hated his job every day of the 29 years he schlepped from Long Island to the city to do it. And the one thing he told me, told me by saying, you know, you will do something you like. I don't care if I have to kill you first. You're going to do something you like for a living. But then by backing that up, and first when I had a hard time getting a job coming out of school, and then four years into my career when I got fired, you know, allowing me an opportunity to come home and kind of regroup and say, you know what, don't just take this job because it's because you got to pay rent. Come home, regroup, get your career back on track, and do it. And so from that standpoint, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never be able – I would never have been able to pay the man back. But also – you know, it's just, it, 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 it was the stories growing up. It's the love of sports that he gave me. It was the love of writing. I mean, he was the guy who brought home the New York Post when I was eight years old and said, here, read this. You know, and, and he was the guy who took me to my first baseball game, pointed to the press box and said, you know, there's, there's guys who actually get paid to, 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 to write about this game. They, 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 that's where they work. And these are all things that, you know, that, that my dad gave me in addition to the fact that he was just, you know, a brilliant, fine, good, good person. And, uh, you know, I do think those are all things that have that, that have turned me into the kind of writer I am. I don't know that I necessarily, you know, want to blame him when I go off the rails or give him too much credit when I write something good, but I do think he's part of me and always will be. 
Wait, two questions. What, number one, what do you do for a living? And number two, how did you get fired from your first job? My father, well, my, well, my father he worked for Western Union. He worked out as a labor, started as a laborer, became management, hated every minute of both jobs. Uh, he was also, uh, uh, on the weekends, he was a, uh, he was a, music, a musician. He was a really accomplished trumpet player. And in fact, at one time earlier in his life, had been asked by Tony Bennett to go on the road with him. And he decided to marry my mother. And so, you know, obviously you talk about two roads diverging. I'm kind of <laughs> gratefully married my mother, but, but, but uh, certainly, I mean, I, th- I do think that that partly informed his advice to me that, you know, do what you love and pursue it and don't worry about the other stuff. That'll all follow. Um, the, 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 the part about me getting fired is a great story because, you know, we were talked just now about, about being young and dumb, right? Well, I was 24 when I got the job as the sports editor at the Northwest Arkansas Times in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I was the youngest sports editor in America. Good for me. I was a terrible sports editor. I obviously took that job because I wanted to be able to write about the Southeastern Conference, about the University of Arkansas. That's why I went. That's why the job was sold to me. That's why I went there. It was an opportunity to see part of the country I knew I probably would never want to live in again. And it was, for about a year and a half, it was wonderful because the people who hired me basically knew I was a terrible sports editor and didn't care. They just wanted they wanted me to write. And I wrote, and I would fill the paper with five, six, seven stories a day in a column and a three-man staff and so forth. Change of leadership and, well, I mean, put it this way, I mean, the new leaders wanted a sports editor. And, you know, they had me. And they wanted the guy who would be compliant with a lot of things they wanted. They had me. And the final straw essentially came because uh, Frank Broyles, who was the athletic director, decided that instead of complying with Title IX, he would reduce the number of, like, secondary men's sports. And so I crushed him for it in the paper. And in so doing that, I also took an unfortunate nut shot at my publisher, who was clearly in cahoots with, with, with Coach Broyles, as he always called him. I mean, it was, it was in code, and only Broyles, the, the, the publisher, and me knew what I was talking about. But, of course, I was 25 and bulletproof and discovered right away I wasn't bulletproof. And so I got called on a Monday and basically said, thank you, but uh, your time here is done. And so I was wow. 25 and out of work. And I, I was 25 years old, out of work, having been fired from a 12,000 circulation paper in Fayetteville, Arkansas. So how was I doing? I just want to say, but, uh, I can't really compete with that. But when I was at the <laughs> Tennessee and my first, my, at first I was a food fashion writer. Then they moved me over to music. And I wrote a, uh, I wrote a piece, the only concert venue at the, at the time in town or the biggest concert venue announced its summer lineup. And it was basically the same summer lineup from the year before. And I wrote this long piece about how lame and awful the summer lineup was. And it turns out they were the Tennesseans major local advertiser. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, I found myself on the police beat, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. well, you actually, the midnight I mean, police you tell, beat. You tell a great, well, you tell a great story too. I know, I, I know, I know, I know I've read it. I've, I've read it on your blogs about, was it when you would, was it, uh, Paper and champagne, where you basically just said "fuck it" and didn't show up anymore, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I was terrible. Youth is wasted on the young, you know. I was terrible. It really is. I mean, and I and I, and I can attest it too. And and it's, uh, you know, I mean, look, I mean, certainly at the time, you know, uh, if someone would have said this is the best thing that ever happened to you, I mean, I would have, I wouldn't have believed it. But I can say that now, not only because, look, I have obviously got on to other things and I've I, I survived that. But you know what? It's it's something that I know. I remember reading one time Frank Sinatra of all people saying that. But it, that, that, that somebody doesn't really understand who they are in life until they've been knocked out at least once. And it's yeah. whether you get up or not that, that determines, you know, what kind of guy you're going to be. And I, I remain distinctly proud of the fact that, you know, I did take a, I, I took, I took a knockout blow. I was out for a couple of months, but I did get to my feet and I have recovered. And I'm proud of that. Probably as proud of that as anything else I've ever accomplished professionally because 
it showed I could take a, I could take a, you know, an uppercut to the jaw. Yeah. I also, you know what I got to say? And I, I really do believe this. And I'm not saying like, I'm anything you're special. You're anything special. You're like, we're writers, you know, we're, we're writers. We're not doctors. We're not curing cancer. Sure. But I do feel like something we probably have in common and that people who last in this business have in common is when they were young and coming up and then along the way, like they took shots, like they gave it a try. They didn't just go safe in the middle. You wrote things that could get you fired. You wrote things that could get you demoted. You just get, you brought something to it because you really wanted it. And you really thought there was a way to go about this. And I worked with a lot of people who either were kind of afraid to do it or didn't really feel comfortable doing it or just didn't want to do it. Um, who didn't really, and maybe they're happier this way, but didn't last very long in journalism. You know what, Jeff? I mean, I, I've never quite thought of it that way, but that is perfectly said. And I completely relate to that on a lot of different levels, both uh, in the way you described yourself and also me and the way you described other people that you worked with in the same way. You know, I know several, I, I know a bunch of guys who certainly were every bit as talented, never bit as ambitious as I was. And, but you're right. They weren't willing to take this career opportunity or this chance, whether it's with a job or just a story or pursuing a story or the way you decided to write something. Uh, you're right. I mean, I mean, and it's, and it's, it's an inter it's interesting. I mean, to, to ponder it that way, I have to say I'm pretty proud of that also and that I was, I was willing to take chances when others didn't. And I think that that's something you should be proud of also because clearly. Yep. You've achieved what you've achieved, you know, by, by, you know, I mean, all, all you got to do is, is look at your resume and realize that you decided uh, several times in your career to, to take a shot at something that maybe, you know, someone would have said, why are you doing that? You know, and it's funny because I, I remember even when I left the Star Ledger to come to the time, to come to the post, you know, the thing that people said to me, they say, they said, you know, the Star Ledger is going to be around forever. What are you doing going to the post? That could, that could close <laughs> tomorrow. I, I talked about Jim Wilsey, the wise old uh, editor I had, but he was the one guy when I left the ledger. He said, you know what? I understand exactly what you got to do. He said, you're 30 years old and you're, you know, you're, 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 you know, you want, you want a taste in New York. You want to, you, you want to take a shot at it. I'm, I'm, I'm in your corner. Go for it. I mean, I appreciated that. I mean, it, it's, it, that was exactly right. Let me ask you a final thing. September 24th, 2015. I'm really glad you sent this to me because it's just beautiful. Yogi Berra. Humble sports here are always right at home. And, uh, it was really your, I mean, it's not obituary. It's a farewell column to Yogi Berra. And just the, the lead is there are a million stories and you will hear all of them. And you will want to hear more of them because when a quintessential American such as Yogi Berra reaches his final reward, there's simply not enough hours in the days that follow to properly celebrate and commemorate. And then you tell your favorite about him and Bob Feller and, and a beautiful story. It was one of the most emotional columns, uh, I feel like I've read in a while. I could be, I feel like you were emotional. I feel like this was an emotional, Yogi Berra's passing was an emotional thing for you. How'd you approach it? How'd you go about writing it? Well, you're right. It was, Yogi did mean a little to me. Yogi was always my father's favorite player. And I had the, I had the absolute joy and thrill and privilege of one day bringing my dad to the Yogi Berra Museum. Just so, just to me, he didn't realize what I was doing. I set this up and who comes walking in and hangs out with my father for about 25 minutes by Yogi Berra. Wow. And couldn't have been nicer. And it was, I mean, it, you know, when I think of my father, I think of him that day. It was probably about a year or two before he passed. And, and just Yogi gave my father that moment and therefore gave me that moment. And so, you know, obviously I, I had some, 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 some very fond feelings for Yogi anyway. I dealt with him many times on other things and was always just, you know, what I, Yogi was what I wish I would have been if I was ever famous. You know, just that, 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 that agreeable, that approachable, that accessible, all that stuff. Certainly I've been, kind of waiting to write that column for a couple of years, I guess. Um, but, you know, 
one of the one of the gifts that I have in my job, one that's just just you know I, I can't ever thank enough whatever or whoever gave me the opportunity to have this job is that I do it in a place where I grew up. So I certainly knew all about Yogi Berra. I, I you know this was a subject with which I was intimately familiar. And you add into the fact that professionally, I talked to him many times, so I've been able to to, to you know kind of acquire my own anecdotes. And that's all the stuff that goes into it, you know. And it's like. I'm not saying that I, that, that, that by, by any means, that I was glad to be able to write that because it meant that he passed. But I was grateful to be able to have the memories and the thoughts and the notions that that I knew would go into writing that. And it was emotional, you know. It, it, I, 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 but and that's really tricky, you know. In the same way that when you're ripping somebody, you want to make sure you don't cross the line into cheap shots. When you're writing a tribute to somebody, you really don't want to cross the line going into modeling. That's really easy to do. And thankfully, I had so many, you know, kind of cool yogi stories that, you know, even though, you know, the, the underlying theme in, in, a, in, a, in a story like that is that he's, he's, he's dead, you know, you can also make people laugh by these memories. And that's kind of what you really hope with anybody, right? Anybody who passes, you'd like to think that you think more about the good times when they were living as opposed to the sadness that they're no longer here. And that's kind of what I was hoping to do in writing that. And, um, you know, like I said, I was fortunate enough to have that feller story and have other stories and have, you know, what's, what remains, you know, we, we all collect these cocktail party stories, right, Jeff? And so the one I love to tell people, because I always want to know about, you know, what's it like, this and that. And I say, well, you know, I got my own yogi, yogiism one time, because he was talking about going back to, and it's in the column, I talked about him going back to France, and, and uh, you know, I'd ask, or not going back to France, because he'd already been there once, because he was there on D-Day. But the French people had come to see him, and, and so he said, yeah, I said, afterward, they gave me, uh, you know, they gave me a hug, and, you know, one of those, you know, one of those French kisses. <laughs> Which he meant was they they they, they kissed him on either yeah, cheek, right. but you know I you know I, I, he didn't understand why I was laughing so much. And Dave Kaplan was there, and he was on the floor laughing too. This is the guy who ran the Yogi Museum when Yogi was around. So so these are the kind of these are the kind of cool souvenirs you get from this life. And I know you've got a bunch of them, and I certainly have more than my share. And it's uh, it's uh, it's one of the real wonderful fringe benefits of doing this for a living. Yeah, you know Jack McCallum when I was early at SI, he said. um, you're not going to be the richest. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to have crazy fame, blah, blah, blah. He goes, but you always, every 10 years, when you go to your high school reunion, you will have the best stories. <laughs> that is very true. And you yeah. know what? It's, 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 uh, there's a lot to be said for that. People really do enjoy these stories. And even, you know, even if I've told them a hundred times, most times people are hearing it for the first time and, and they enjoy them. And, and that's fun. That's fun to be able to be able to do that. Well, Mike, I, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And, uh, I've literally sat in my car. It's about 95 degrees in this thing, staring at the Starbucks <laughs> nearby. But the, uh, the conversation has made it worthwhile. And I, uh, I really, I'm a huge admirer of your work. And I really, I really do appreciate it. And the best part, Jeff, is I'm just sitting here 3,000 miles away watching the skies darken and hail pound my house and we're hoping that the tree in front of my house doesn't fall over. So I'm happy to report that the tree survived <laughs> and so did we. <laughs> oh, nice. I want to thank today's guest, Mike Vaccaro, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Vac, the ACC, and read his stuff in the New York Post. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. Also a reminder, my book about the USFL, Football for a Buck, is available for pre-sale now, and it's out officially in September. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on Apple Music and Google Play. And reviews are always appreciated. Music by MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.